You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. In this episode, Hannah and Fergus from our cyber team discuss the Chinese surveillance state. Maddie and Jackie considered the continued rise of right-wing extremism across Europe. We'll also bid adieu to Simon Norton from our strategic policing program. And we'll start with Marcus and Malcolm, our two interchangeable grumpy strategists on the expansion of PLA power. Today I'm speaking with Malcolm Davis, one of ESPY's longstanding analysts who writes a lot in the area of capability, particularly in the Asia Pacific. And today I'm going to talk to Malcolm about his recent trip to Taiwan, where he participated for a couple of weeks in the PLA, so the People's Liberation Army Studies Program at Taiwan's National Defence University. So what were the key takeaways, Malcolm? Look, Marcus, I think it was a very interesting two-week course where we had a deep dive into uh, where the PLA is going as a fighting force in terms of their reform process. We looked at everything from military strategy and strategic philosophy uh, through to PLA organisational reform, through to some of the specific services such as the PLA Strategic Support Force, which is the force for space and cyber, and the PLA Rocket Force. And then we looked at it in a geographical context in terms of what the PLA are doing in the South China Sea, what they're doing in the Indian Ocean, and what they're doing in the the Eastern Theatre, which would be the theatre focused uh, primarily on Taiwan. Mm -hmm. But any military force has to fit into a broader national strategy. So what's the broader Chinese national strategy? Well, the the conclusion that we came to was that China seeks to restore itself to be the Middle Kingdom of the 21st century. They feel um, that during the period from 1839 to 1949, they were uh, humiliated, what they call the century of humiliation, where they, they lost that Middle Kingdom status. And so that now they feel it's their time in the sun to restore that and become the Middle Kingdom once again. And what that means for the region is that they want their neighbouring states to become vassal states that would basically accommodate China's interests. They have a group of imaginary territories which ultimately they want to control but they don't control yet and then they have what's an imaginary territory an imaginary territory is basically states that uh, are like japan for example that they feel they should control uh, but for historical reasons they have yet to control so the they but not control through military occupation not necessarily no They, they basically want these states to become like vassals and, and is Australia one of these imaginary no, states? No, Australia is on the outer ring, which are the barbarian states. Mm-hmm, how fitting. Uh, how We are barbarians, yes. And um, when they said that in the course, immediately images of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Crom came to mind. <laughs> but um, uh, look, I think that the Chinese do have a very clear intention regarding to Australia in terms of using sharp power to influence us in a manner to realign to them. And that fits in with their overall grand strategy, which basically says that all of Asia should align to them because they are the Middle Kingdom. They're returning to the rightful place. And historically, that's the way it was before. Mm-hmm. Now, you're just about to publish a piece in Aspie Strategist that looking at Taiwan, drawing on some of the things you uh, learned over there. So what uh, do you think is going on with China and Taiwan? Are we pre- approaching a point of forced reunification? I think we could be. Uh, certainly, the Taiwanese are extremely concerned about China increasing its air and naval operations around Taiwan. Uh, uh, that uh, basically could be seen as a prelude to some sort of military campaign across the Taiwan Straits. 
these sorts of operations would be identical to what the PLA would do if they were to undertake a naval and air blockade alongside air and missile strikes into Taiwan. But certainly the Taiwanese are incredibly worried about Chinese attempts to influence the political and economic situation in Taiwan. For example, the Chinese are not only supporting the pro-Chinese elements within Taiwan, they're also supporting the pro-independence elements in an effort to um, generate discord and unrest in mm-hmm. Taiwan. So, Very cunning. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think that the, the, the sense I got from speaking to the Taiwanese was they feel that a climax is fast approaching. And when you look at the centennial goals of 2021, uh, which is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, and 2049, which is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the PRC, um, they are concerned that Xi will want to move very quickly and maybe achieve the reunification of Taiwan by 2021. Now, if we're talking sort of reunification by military means, does that mean classic D-Day-style amphibious invasion? Is China at that point where it has that capability? It's moving towards that point. I think that they are certainly well-placed to do a military coercion campaign involving air and naval blockade, as well as air and missile strikes into Taiwan and use of special forces to take out key targets, including the political leadership they are not yet at the point whereby they can invade and occupy Taiwan. Mm -hmm. However, by the early 2020s, they might be a lot closer. And so they might be tempted, uh, particularly if they see Taiwan stray too close to the US and flirt too much with independence to launch some sort of military campaign across the strait that would try to coerce the Taiwanese government back to accept China's domination. Mm-hmm. Now, there's been a lot written uh, about China's developing anti-access, anti-denial capabilities. Generally, that's sort of been looked at as aimed against the US and pre- preventing the US from intervening in China. So presumably any attempt to reunify Taiwan would also draw on those anti-access, anti-denial capabilities to essentially keep the US at bay and stop the US intervening on Taiwan's behalf. And it certainly is the case. And uh, the lectures that we got on the PLA rocket forces uh, went into great detail on how the rocket forces would be used the sorts of new capabilities the Chinese developing in this regard, the DF-17, which has a hypersonic glide vehicle. PLA Strategic Support Force lecture talked about space and cyber attack and how they would utilise counter space capabilities against our satellites to deny us the ability to operate at long range. And, of course, their naval capability growth. The, the, the Taiwanese were particularly focused on the aircraft carrier side of things. Um, they were particularly you know, concerned about what the Chinese could do with their aircraft carriers. The Americans. No, the, the Chinese uh-huh. aircraft carriers. Interesting, okay. And, you know, the news that the Chinese have not only lo- uh, got the Liaoning, but they've launched their first indigenous car- carrier, and now they're developing uh, two follow-on carriers simultaneously, which may be nuclear-powered. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Chinese are moving fast to develop aircraft carriers and potentially aircraft carrier battle groups. Interesting. Okay, thank you very much. Look forward to seeing uh, the work that comes out of it. Thank you. And I understand you had a really good visit to Adelaide for the Land Forces Conference. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I had a great time in Adelaide and I talked to a lot of people, looked at a lot of um, exhibitors, and I was really struck by um, the amount of innovation that's going on uh, in Army and with its partners. And Army's really working hard to adapt to the changing environment. Um, what it's doing is incorporating a lot of new technologies into its existing platforms, such as a counter UAS technology is being integrated into the Bushmaster. CA's phased array radar is being integrated into a Hawkeye as part 
part of the new air defence project. So there's a lot of uh, really interesting, innovative work going on. One of the things that I've really started to think about is um, a bigger change, I think, that Army has to think through. So traditionally, Army has focused on close combat. You know, so the battle at five kilometres or out to 10 kilometres, you know, it's uh, artillery is really, you know, 20 kilometre range. But there's a number of projects in the recent white paper that really uh, extend Army's reach considerably. For example, the Air Defence Project has a missile that potentially be operating out at 50 or 100 kilometres. And that's really getting it into the kind of air defence space that is traditionally the remit of Air Force. So it's going to have to, you know, not only uh, think differently, but integrate into different battle management systems. It's going to need new doctrine. And that'll be quite a different role for Army. Now, the Americans are looking at buying or developing a new uh, long-range army rocket that will go 1,000 miles. Uh, if the army is serious about the sort of long-range firepower mission that it seems to be developing, particularly for expeditionary operations, do you th- do you see Australia potentially getting this sort of capability in the future? Yes is the short answer. So there's two projects in the white paper that could lead it in that direction. One is a land-based anti-ship missile project, which is, again, putting Army into a a new space it hasn't really operated in. You know, that could be a missile with a range of two or 300 kilometres operating over the horizon. Very different kind of proposition to traditional artillery with a range of 20 kilometres. And there also is um, a long-range fires program in the white paper. No solution is really being picked. It's pretty conceptual at the moment, but one kind of solution is the sort of thing you were talking about. Mm. And again, so that would move Army from operating at 20 kilometre range to potentially 2,000 kilometre range. And again, different kind of thinking, different kind of doctrine, different kind of battle management system. So seeing Army adapt to that kind of change from a close combat force to a force operating at great range is really going to be uh, interesting, but I think challenging for the whole defence organisation. Thank you very much, Marcus. It sounds fascinating and I look forward to some more strategist pieces coming out of you in the future. And I think that's all for us today. And thank you, Malcolm. And now we'll hear from our cyber team on Chinese video surveillance equipment being used in Australian military bases and intelligence sites. So, Fergus, last month saw the US banning government agencies from using surveillance technology companies Hikvision and Dahua, who are respectively the largest and second largest camera surveillance technology companies in the world. This ban came after concerns that the technology was being used to create a surveillance network among federal agencies. Do you think that these concerns are legitimate? These concerns have been raised repeatedly about these two companies, Hike Vision and Dawa. They've been banned by the United States because security researchers around the world have identified a string of flaws from what looks like the intentional writing of backdoors into these products uh, to the general ability for these companies, because they are based in China, to be controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. It's also been found that these CCTV cameras are in Australian military bases and government facilities. There are also hundreds of thousands of these surveillance cameras located in Australian homes, across street corners, outside local councils. What are the security implications for this? Well, they can be pretty serious because you think about where do you put a camera? You put it in places where you want to protect or you've got something sensitive uh, that you're trying to protect. So when you put them in a military base, for example, uh, you're also identifying all the goings on in that particular base. If you put them outside an intelligence agency building, for example, you're filming every all the intelligence agency 
that are coming in and out of that building. So if those cameras can be controlled or accessed remotely uh, by the Chinese Communist Party, then it provides enormous insights into the goings-on in sensitive um, buildings around the world, whether it be an embassy or whether it be a, an intelligence agency. So there are also reports of these cameras being used to identify dissidents and ethnic minorities by the Chinese Communist Party. What are the human rights implications for this technology? Well, we've seen China really be at the vanguard of efforts to try and harness technology in a way that has very serious human rights concerns. China is trying to, instead of sort of using the internet to improve rights and improve freedoms and and openness uh, and transparency, it's using that to try and uh, suppress and control its population, the Chinese Communist Party. So we've seen it uh, really at the forefront of efforts to use facial recognition, for example, uh, to pick out ethnic uh, minorities, to use it to pick out people that are accusers of crimes out of crowds. And we're now starting to see these companies uh, really at the forefront of things like gate analysis, uh, this idea that everybody has a unique way of walking. And it's another way that you can pick people out when you can't necessarily get a clear picture of their face. And what this all adds up to is essentially a surveillance state where law enforcement authorities or intelligence agencies in China are able to use these technologies to control, monitor and suppress uh, opposition activists, uh, human rights activists, uh, ethnic minorities that the, the Communist Party doesn't particularly like or is afraid of and to use this in a really malicious way. And we're seeing lots and lots of examples coming out about this. We had a huge report out from uh, Human Rights Watch uh, this week about one ethnic minority group that was being uh, heavily suppressed by China and hundreds of thousands of people put through uh, re-education camps. So it's, it's a, it's a huge problem. And what the risk is, is we've got this effort by China seemingly to want to try and control the information environment overseas and internationally. So, The challenge we've got here is with these cameras, which are one part of the Chinese surveillance state and its tentacles reaching out internationally, is efforts to try and push, suck up information uh, internationally and to exert control internationally. So one example that we saw recently where this was used under the social credit scheme uh, in an international context was to force airlines around the world to stop calling uh, Taiwan a country and to instead call it part of China. So there's an example of China trying to extend this uh, information reach and control into an international context. Pike Vision and Dahua, the companies affected by this ban, maintain that they're independent industry and that their products are not being used for purposes of the Chinese Communist Party. So why is this ban important and do you think that Australia should follow suit? Well, this is an issue that's often raised by Chinese companies and in some circumstances you you can feel for them in a sense because you can have the best intentions in the world as a Chinese company. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that under China's own law, under its national intelligence law, it requires companies, it obliges them to cooperate in uh, espionage activity on behalf of the state. So even if a Chinese company has the best intentions, the best transparency, the best approaches uh, to dealing with these issues, it still can be compelled by the Chinese Communist Party to participate in espionage activities, which makes it very difficult for these companies to engage in areas that are sensitive, like providing video surveillance equipment around the world. In the case of these particular companies, uh, one of them in particular uh, grew out of the uh, Chinese military surveillance space uh, and uh, has a significant ownership still. So it's it's not even a case of whether it's connected to the Chinese state, it is connected to the Chinese state. Um, so it's not even one removed. 
But we saw a similar example of this uh, recently with uh, Huawei, for example, in Australia, where it was uh, made the same case that it was not a tool of the Chinese uh, government, but nonetheless is subject to Chinese law, of course, uh, and can be compelled to cooperate in espionage activity on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. So do you think that Australia should follow suit with this ban? Well, I think it's it would make a lot of sense uh, to make sure that these cameras aren't being used in sensitive areas uh, around the country. And particularly, I think it would make sense for governments, uh, government usage to, to ban them. But even having said that, you run into all kinds of difficulties. As the ABC investigation pointed out, you can have a high vision camera attached to a, a private building that isn't necessarily owned by a government building, but its field of vision can include very sensitive government sites. So even if you're banning them from government buildings, you raise this secondary problem that they could be placed on on other private buildings that are nearby and nonetheless capture the same uh, sensitive information uh, that you're trying to prevent. So uh, you have to really think about this in in, in bigger terms uh, beyond just the immediate sphere of, of government usage. Thanks for your time today, Fergus. Thanks a lot, Hannah. Here's Maddie and Jackie talking the Swedish election, German protests and the rise of right-wing extremism. Welcome back to the podcast. Jackie, thanks for coming in again. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Let's dive right in. So there was an election in Sweden over the week. You know, why should we care about this? It's in Europe. I'm going to tell you why we should care about this. Please share. Yep. Um, I think, you know, the Swedish uh, elections are really representative of what I see as an increasingly familiar trend that we're witnessing across a variety of um, European parliamentary systems. And this is a trend towards political flag sorry a trend towards political fragmentation and the slow decline of dominant po- political parties you know i read a great line in a piece from the guardian that called the swedish elections uh and i quote a litmus test for democracy across the region very well put it was wasn't it and you know it's really telling you know for me personally i'm not a european expert like yourself jackie but um, you know, it's telling that the fact that this anti-immigrant narrative could gain prominence in a country like Sweden that, you know, historically has been one of Europe's most open nations towards refugees. This is a worrying sign. I agree. I couldn't agree more. And I mean, if you look at what's happening in Germany at the moment, the exactly. images, I think by now we've all seen some pictures or at least some videos short clips. Of- people being chased down the street. Yeah, and look, as a German myself, it is really disturbing to see that happening at home, seeing our history and especially our education about our history. And it really upsets me seeing videos where people run through the street and call for national socialism now. But yeah, so for those that are not really across what's happening there, basically a young man was killed by two asylum seekers that have been arrested since then. Um, It sparked huge... Still alleged right? Um, yeah. yeah. Um, it has sparked massive riots in the Saxonian city of Chemnitz. Mm-hmm. So Saxony is a st- state in the east of Germany, former GDR. Um, and I found really great analysis around the whole narrative that it's always in Saxony. It's only there. Uh, two of them look at the underlying root causes. So one is in the Berlin Policy Journal by Bedina Westring, and one wrote, was written by Judy Dempsey for Carnegie. And both show that there's a lot more to the whole issue. Um, there are social, economic, and psychological root causes that mm. cause this 
situation where, let's say, right-wing extremist ideology has an easy play with is being slightly, attractive is suddenly more appealing to certain yes. people. Yeah. Um, and so, for example, Saxony was highly and heavily industrialised before the reunification of Germany. So overnight factories were closed, people lost their jobs. Now there's low wages, high unemployment, people leaving the region, especially yeah. young educated women. Another piece showed in Politico that it is not only an issue of Germany's East or just Germany's East. As you said, it's all across Europe. And in Germany, respectively, it's also in the former West, where in cities the AFD gets a lot of traction and support. Um, and again, it's grievances that are shared by a lot of people. Um, they feel like second-class citizens. They're competing around jobs and social welfare yeah. with um, incoming asylum seekers. And so they feel that the jobs have been taken by asylum seekers. Yeah, or, yeah. you know, their women are being stolen. Exactly. And that's what I sort of thought was really interesting. You know, the protest was sparked by the killing, the alleged killing of a man by asylum seekers. But I really noticed that there's this narrative around ideals of masculinity that is being used to sort of as a, a justification almost for the ongoing violence that we're seeing. You know, I've seen protesters argue that, you know, these refugees are responsible for attacks against German women and they're using that to sort of call on other men, um, you know, to sort of join in these protests as a means of protecting German women, you know. So it's just these really interesting tropes and narratives around gender that we're seeing, you know, more broadly with these protests that I think are just a really under-analyzed aspect of the protest. I was about to say we don't really often look at that side. No, we um, don't. I think... I- too often gender is sort of, you know, put aside as kind of like something within the private sphere. But, you know, that's a conversation for another time. It is indeed. I feel. Yeah. Uh, maybe just as a closing note on the discussion we've just been having. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's a huge issue in Europe at the moment, but we did see uh, similar developments in the US already over the last couple of years with the rise of white nationalism. Um, and also Australia is not really immuted. Um, if you look at the national security environment, ASIO, for example, has pointed out in its annual reports. For like the past seven years. Yeah, that um, right-wing extremism and racist extremism is a worry in this country. And um, I think you also read this great piece by Sophia Patel that explores the threat of far-right extremism in Australia, Mm. which was published on Hope Not Hate. Yeah, no, that's a really awesome organisation operating out of London. And I did read the piece and what I sort of thought was really interesting was the connections she made between the different um, right-wing extremist groups within Australia and how they sort of play off one another and how they kind of, you know, where their ideology is the same and where it diverges. So it's just, yeah, it's a really interesting piece for people wanting to get their head across um, these issues and how it affects Australia. Cool. So with that in mind, Jackie, thanks for sitting down and chatting with me again. It was a pleasure. Hopefully a bit more uplifting topic next time. Yeah, hopefully. And speaking of uplifting topic... There was a historic judgment in India um, this past week where they have legalized gay sex, um, which is great. So um, to chat about this, um, I've brought in Akriti. She's a research intern here at Aspie. And you're originally from Kolkata, yeah? Yes, that's right. Awesome. So I'm really interested in getting your perspective, Akriti, as someone who, you know, who has family and friends there, who grew up in the country. What does this ruling kind of mean to you? Thanks, Maddie. Actually, uh, this is 
welcome development and it's really positive news there was a brief period between 2009 and 2012 homosexuality had been decriminalized uh, temporarily uh, but that was overturned in 2012 and it was met with a lot of resentment i think at the moment the feeling on the ground is great people are really happy about it but then again i think somebody spoke about this that this issue is a very middle class and upper middle class issue as in okay. it really does not matter to the general population to that extent so yeah. there was no wider reaction on the ground in that okay. sense but i think in the last decade how we depict or think about homosexuality has changed a lot because uh, even in the portrayal um, in in you know in movies or in local culture and a lot of celebrities have come out of the closet in recent years and it's been you know they're loved all the same so um, people in my generation belong to uh the middle class or upper middle class are ecstatic because um quite frankly this was uh, an abomination on our democratic values and it's al- yeah. it's also important to remember that this is basically a colonial legacy exactly. it was it I, was yeah. yeah i read a really interesting piece that argued just that in the yeah. conversation that yeah. for sort of the british colonials came into india you know yeah you know, free sex was, yeah, yeah. it wasn't frowned upon. India has historically uh, been a very uh, sexually liberal country. Yeah. And it was basically with the coming of the British that these, you know, very conservative uh, views on sexuality were imposed on the Absolutely. Uh, population. And that sort of got ingrained in mindsets. And although, you know, there are quite a few uh, re- religious uh, institutions that are against this ruling you know this overturning i think um, the supreme court has f- finally delivered a very strong statement linking sexual freedom to fundamental rights mm. um and i think it it just gives me another reasons to another reason to be a very proud indian i think oh that's that's so great <laughs> to hear i mean yeah. i was sort of going to ask like you know changing a law is one thing but changing sort of deeply held mindsets is kind of another thing. Given the swing towards more conservative politics in India, do you think that this ruling is going to change perspectives on the ground, especially sort of you were mentioning before it's quite a middle class issue. Like will it change perspectives in the lower classes that are perhaps more conservative in their views on these issues? I think definitely, again, there was a feeling that this ruling might not come uh, under the present government because essentially the RSS, the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, uh, which is the cultural wing of the ruling party, they're quite, uh, they've been quite vocal about these issues and they're really not in favor of homosexuality yeah. at all. But what was interesting was by contrast, Modi, he hasn't really commented no, on he, what's been happening no, at all. No, he cannot... I, that's that's not surprising at any level because yeah, okay. uh, he has to follow the party line. Yeah. Uh, regardless of, I'm not even sure what his what his views personal are. Views I don't are think anyone this. is. Yeah. But you know, just the fact that this ruling got passed with you know in this administration and without any hiccups, a lot of people were campaigning for it. There was mm. a really strong activist movement on the ground, and it was high time that you know this happened and yeah. um, it, it it aligns more truly with our democratic values with our appreciation of human rights and yeah it was just it was long time coming yeah i think well i mean i guess finally what do you think is next on the cards in india do you think we'll see an announcement of legalizing gay marriage <laughs> um no i think we'd be jumping the gun okay. there but um, <laughs> we can hope though we yes certainly but i think um that'll come that'll 
happen with another generation in yeah. power. I think that will be a generation yeah. ge- generational shift for a country, and where things have uh, you know are famous to run slow. Uh, <laughs> well, if it can happen in Australia, you know, there's hope. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, thanks. thanks so much for having a chat with me today, Kriti. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Maddie. Now, I'm sitting here with Simon Norton from our Strategic Policing Program. Simon has been with us for about two years at ASPE, maybe coming, even more. Coming up three almost. Wow. Can you believe it? <laughs> Gone so quick. No. Uh, and Simon has also decided to defect to New Zealand. Uh, <laughs> and, and he'll be leaving us this week. Is that right? That's right. Last day, uh, Friday. Right. And New Zealand's actually home for you, though. Originally, yeah. Although I haven't uh, lived there since 2002. so I'm sure nothing's changed. Uh, a few things have. I've been back in between. <laughs> uh, now, I just wanted to kind of grab you before you went off and ask about some of the highlights of your time at ASPE. Mm. I know that at least from a research point of view, you did this really fantastic report on uh, Australia's counterterrorism financing system mm. that uh, I, from my perspective, was supposed to be quite groundbreaking in the area and in new research that was necessary for, I guess, the industry. Um, Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about that report? Yeah, sure, Renee. Um, Yeah, I think uh, it's probably terrorism financing is not a high-profile area of of the many policy tools that we have to counter terrorism financing. Uh, So I produced a paper with Paula Chatterton in late 2016, and we sort of looked at the Australian system, the international system, what we're doing to counter terrorism financing. I was partly educational because a lot of people don't know about it, uh, but also some policy recommendations on what we should be doing better. So I think that that was really good. Uh, we've seen really good progress in the last couple of years in Australia, taking up some of our recommendations and doing some other things as well. So I think there's good progress. And off the back of that, I've done quite a lot of training as well, actually, with our law enforcement domestically and internationally. So I think there's more awareness about quite an important area. Great. And so is there still a, a long way to go in terms of improving Australia's counterterrorism financing system? Yeah, definitely there is. There's um, regulatory change uh, and there's been a review of the Act and that change is taking, it's quite slow uh, and it probably needs to be sped up a little bit, but it'll also take a while to do. I think our cooperation with South- Southeast Asian countries is really positive and that should continue as we focus more on the terrorist threat in our region rather than the Middle East. So there's plenty to do. And of course, terrorists and like criminals are always adapting. And so we have to be aware of changes as well. So that's going to be an ongoing fight. No one ever really leaves Aspie. So I know you've got quite a few projects that are still ongoing. Mm. What's coming up for you in the future? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's really good. Uh, Even though I'm departing physically, I'll still be doing some work uh, from for ASPE. Uh, so I'll probably highlight a couple of things to look at. Um, one is Australia's law enforcement cooperation with China. It's probably not another well-known area as well. Um, and Australia does quite good work, particularly in the drugs front. So ASPE's got some um, forthcoming papers in that space, which I'll be contributing to. The other one I'd highlight is public-private partnerships to disrupt financial crime, which has been sort of a passion of mine, trying to improve things uh, in that space since I've been here. And again, Australia's doing quite good work in that space. Um, particularly through Fintel Alliance, which is an Austrac-led public-private partnership. Uh, it's probably leading uh, example of this in the world. So I'm working on a paper that will be a guideline for other countries and jurisdictions. So that'll be coming out later in the year. And I'll be speaking at our conference in Sydney at Cybos uh, in October as well, which will give some of the, our preliminary findings on how that's working. Great. I like that we're really putting you to work when you're trying to leave <laughs> us. 
<laughs> As you say, you never quite leave. <laughs> no, you don't. Now, I'm sure there are many things that you're going to miss about Aspie, especially the very well-selected canapes at our function. <laughs> that was a highlight, yes. <laughs> but just in terms of you, like what's been a personal highlight mm. or things that you'll miss uh, yeah. when you leave? Uh, lots of things. I think obviously the people anywhere you work. I've worked with some uh, great analysts, made some great friends here as well. Uh, so that's always the big one. And we've got so many people of interesting experience and knowledge that are coming through all the time. Uh, so to be able to pick their brains, I think uh, to be close to, to government in Canberra and actually having your finger on the pulse of what's going on uh, and, and those relationships will, will sort of be a big one for me. And the canopies I can highly recommend if you haven't <laughs> been to an SP event. <laughs> Wonderful. Now, uh, my very important question when you go to New Zealand, does that mean that you're switching any sporting teams? Are you now barracking for the All Blacks? I've always been barracking for the All Blacks. <gasps> Probably safe decision. They do win <laughs> consistently. So, yeah. 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 Well, Simon, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and wishing you the very best of luck. And um, it's going to be a big loss for Aspie. But as we said, we'll see more from you in the future on Aspie's research page. Yeah. Thank- thanks a lot, Renee. And that's all we have for this episode of Policy, Guns and Money. But don't go away just yet. We want to know what topics you'd like to hear more of and what you don't like. If you've got 30 seconds, check out the link below. We'll be back in two weeks.